So anyway, enough about the mustache. What we're talking about is John Lennon. He was a tinker. I don't know if you guys know what a tinker is, but it's somebody who would like travel around with a wagon and sell things, um, just like a kind of little traveling store. His dad was a tinker, he was a tinker, and he converted to Christianity on one of those trips selling things. He was like, he walked up to some women and he's trying to sell them some of his stuff and they were talking about spiritual things. And so after listening to these women talk for a while, he converted to Christianity and to their church in particular. And at that time, the official church in England was the Anglican Church. And I don't know if you guys know anything about Anglican churches. They are very formal, they're very liturgical. Um, going to a service can feel a little bit like going to a Catholic mass. It's very structured. Um, and that was the official church, and you had to belong to it, and anything outside of that was illegal. So as he converted, he converted to the Bedford Nonconformist Church, which was the English version of the Protestant at that time. So after, after converting, he decided that he wanted to be uh, a preacher. So he was traveling and preaching, and he actually was thrown in jail in 1660 for preaching outside of the church, the uh, Anglican church. And he was in prison for 12 years, and then during his time in prison, he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. So that's where we're going tonight. It's the allegory of a life of a Christian from faith, from the beginning of faith into heaven. And an allegory is just like a parable. It's a story that has two meanings. It has what's happening, and it has a deeper meaning underneath it. And so Pilgrim's Progress is the story of one man's life journey. On your table, you have these cute maps. You guys, again, nerding out, was on Etsy. And I was like, they have hand-drawn maps of the Pilgrim's Progress. We're gonna use them. And they're numbered one through four. We're gonna kind of just walk through the map and the story. And you also have notes on your tables. So you guys need both of those to follow along tonight. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna start. Jesus, um, I need help. <laughs> I just like I told the girls before everybody came in the door. I feel like there's a lot of different ideas that I want to connect really well. And um, it feels like a sandwich, like a spiritual sandwich, that all the layers need to be right for the sandwich to taste good. So just make it taste good, God. I am here to like serve and to just be what you want me to be tonight and speak what's true about you. So I just ask for your help in that. Um, and I would just ask that this would be a great journey together tonight, learning about who you call us to be. In your name, amen. Okay, so I have a question for you guys. I'm gonna give you like two minutes to ask and answer this question. Here it is. Why does God not take us immediately to heaven when we accept Christ? And Here's one of the spiritual truths. 
is that God desires growth. God desires growth. He's a gardener. And he even talks about himself as, as someone who grows things. He grows vines. He grows fruit. He grows trees. God desires growth. And several kinds of growth. There's the growth of his family through salvation in the gospel. He desires that everyone come to know him. We have the choice, we have the option, we have free will, but his desire is for everyone to know him. And so people have said, why, doesn't, why is there suffering? One of the answers to why is there suffering and why doesn't God immediately take us to heaven is that there are more people who need to know who he is. And he's chosen to make that known to you and me. And growth in our individual souls. He wants us to display the fruit of the Spirit. He wants us to use our spiritual gifts. And he wants us to become more and more like him. And then growth in the good works that he's prepared for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So that's number, I, get, I would say number two, um, reason why God doesn't take us immediately to heaven, is that he desires our growth, number one, but number two, he's made things for us to do. He's planned things for us to do. When God created the world, he didn't just create Adam and Eve and be like, all right, now you guys just sit around, enjoy, just chilling, have some naps. He gave them the garden and he told them to work in it. He told them to work. So God is always preparing things for us to do. And in this, we're all on a journey individually and together. So we're going to get started. If you look at your map, map number one, this is the story of a man whose name starts out as Graceless. And he lives in this city called the City of Destruction. He has a big burden on his back, a really big, like, boulder. Like, think of a backpack, but like, you know how you've seen, y'all, I don't know how some of these kids do it. I've seen them carrying backpacks around that are like this deep and this wide. I'm like, where's your locker? Like, put some of that down. Imagine that, but even bigger. He's hunched over because he, he's carrying a heavy burden. And he's concerned because he knows that his city is not going to last very long. He can see the signs, he can feel it in the air. He knows there's some destruction coming his way. And he wants to get out. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about that. It says, as for you, and this is Paul talking to all of us, it says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is at work in those who are who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, ratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's all of us pre-Jesus. We're all living in the same city of destruction. So our friend Graceless was living in the city of destruction. He's like, I cannot do this anymore. I am getting out. And he heads out. By the way, I love the names. John Bunyan is funny. I love the names. This is the town called Stupidity, also on the map. And then there's another one called um, Vain Delights. I was like, nice. And then there's another one called Carnal Policy. Old English is really interesting. I love the way that they used to phrase things. So it's funny to me. But he's leaving the city of destruction, and he meets a man named Evangelist, who tells him where to go to get rid of his burden, and he starts in that direction, which is north. So he starts going up on the map. And he has to pass through this, it's called the Slaw de Son. Basically, think of it as like a marsh or like a really swampy ground where it's hard to get through. And he's walking and he's walking and he hits this marsh of despair right after the evangelist talks to him. And that's pretty normal. I think that 
the slot to spawn can show up multiple times, maybe, in our journey towards Christ, in our journey after Christ, because the world is hard, and the enemy doesn't want us to keep moving, so it's easy to get stuck in despair and despondency and depression. So he continues on. He makes it through. He makes it through the marsh. And then he meets this man called Worldly Wise Man. And this Worldly Wise Man is like, listen, you don't need to go up to where the evangelist told you to go. What you need to do is go over with me to the right this town called Morality. Morality will fix it. It will get rid of your burden. If you live a good life, if you follow the rules, it's all you need. And so he goes to Morality, and it doesn't get rid of his burden. It makes it heavier. So he's like, I'm out. And he keeps going. And he has to go to this place called the Wicket Gate, which is at the top of your map. And it's a little tiny, narrow gate. And he goes through the gate. And then, if you turn your page over on map number two, you'll notice there, it's called the Way of Salvation. And he stops at that place called the Interpreter's House. And in that house, he learns about God, and his understanding is open, and his eyes are open. An interpreter tells him to go to the hill with a cross on it. Interpreter, in the story, stands for the Holy Spirit. He's opening up the eyes of his heart. He's opening up Graceless's heart to the gospel. He's teaching him things. So Graceless goes to the cross, and his burden falls off his back, falls into the tomb at the bottom of the cross, and then Paul Bunyan writes, he never sees it anymore. And not only does he not see his burden anymore, his name has changed from graceless to Christian. And there, at that cross, is where Christian is justified. And that is a picture of what happens to all of us when we give our lives to Christ. It's the doctrine of justification. And so here is what we're going to ask and answer. And it's on your sheet. It says, what does justification mean? And it means is to declare righteous, not to make righteous in the sense of like transforming your character, but it's a legal term, declaring you righteous from the law, where a judge pronounces someone either as guilty or not guilty. So justification is basically God saying, you are not guilty. And that is, period. You are not guilty forever, no matter what happens. So there's some feeling of blanks, and I want you guys to understand some things about justification. Justification is legal. It is entirely God's work. It is perfectly achieved in this life and the next. It's the same for every, Christ, for every Christian, every Christ follower, and it happens once forever. Does that make sense, guys? So justification is what happened when Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. The debt is paid. You and I are not liable for the things that we do or will do or have done in our lives anymore. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed in interceding for us. So what is Romans 8 saying? It's saying, who's going to bring any charge against us? Jesus has already justified us. I don't know about you guys, but that gives me so much comfort and so much peace. When I think about the amount of things that I do wrong in a day, I do a lot wrong in the day, guys. And when I think about the fact that the enemy cannot bring any charge against me before God that would ever change my standing, I'm a child of God now and forever, that gives me so much peace. 
So in that moment, when our friend Christian is at the cross, he's fully justified. God removed his burden, his debt. God's adopted him as a son into his household. You guys remember we talked the first week about being a son adopted into a household at the king's table? That is justification. And that's where our hero's journey continues. So instead of God immediately taking Christian to heaven, he gives him the hill of difficulty, which just makes me laugh. I love Paul by name because he's really real. He's like, okay, you got saved. Great, here's your hill of difficulty. <laughs> and this is where Christian starts his journey of sanctification. So the next question is, what does sanctification mean? There's a couple definitions that I liked. And so um, we're going to read them both. The first one is from the Westminster Catechism. And it's the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. It is a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. Westminster Catechism is another old English thing. Basically what it is saying is that it is the change in us from baby new creation to full maturity in Christ, becoming more and more like Jesus. Does that make sense, guys? The second one is from John Wesley, and I like it a lot because it's simple and to the point. It says, a faith that works by divine love in the crucible of everyday life. And I love that word crucible, because crucible is where a fire hits something and melts it. It changes it. And I love the idea of the everyday, everyday life being a crucible, because I don't know about you guys, but my everyday life, sometimes it's a crucible. And that can be anything from like the mundane tasks that we do as moms and wives and women in our careers, or as daughters in our families, or it can be major things that happen, health crisis, financial crisis, spiritual crisis, it can be all kinds of things, but it's faith working through divine love to change us in the crucible of life. So some things to know about sanctification. It is an internal condition. It is continuous throughout life, from salvation to heaven. We participate. We're not passive. We participate. It doesn't work if we don't. It's not completed in this life. And there are Christians who will walk it out with Jesus really well, and their sanctification will be further along than others. So it's greater in some Christ followers than others. If you look at this map, there are some paths. There's one going straight up the hill, and there's one going to destruction, and the other one going to danger. And the thing about the hill of difficulty that I love, that I think Paul, or yeah, John Bunyan, I keep wanting to call him Paul Bunyan, but no, that was the guy with the axe, different Bunyan. <laughs> um, the thing about the hill of difficulty is that there's only one way, and it's over. If God has given you something to walk through in your crucible of life, the only way to go through it well is to go through it. There's no going around it. There's no skipping it. Those ways actually end up giving us more problems rather than less. Remember that spiritual truth that we talked about, that God desires growth, and growth often comes from discomfort. And that sucks. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to grow sometimes, right? I want to just like live in my little sproutling life, just be like three inches tall and be like, I'll see you in heaven, Lord. But grow me then. But God loves us too much to leave us alone where we are. And so he gives us difficulty 
So along the way, as we grow from babyhood to full maturity, we're given a job to do, which is good works and sharing the message of salvation. I'm going to give you guys some scripture, and I want you guys to read it together at your table and write down the things that you notice about sanctification in scripture. What are things that we're supposed to do? So the first one is Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. The second one is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. So have a couple people at your table read the scriptures, and then you guys discuss. I'm going to give you a good 15 minutes to do that, and then we'll come back together. Okay, guys. What did you guys see? What did you guys see in those scriptures about sanctification? I'm going to call on y'all because I know you. Go for it. really good. That there's a choice. There's a participation. Yep. Anybody else? Okay. What was that mean? Sorry, I thought you talked to them. I could. It's just easier to call on people though. <laughs> Did you guys catch, like, Paul talks a lot about the way that we think about ourselves? Did you guys catch the mindset in Romans where he says, count yourselves dead to sin? There's a mindset change that we're supposed to have when we think about who we are and how we act and interact with the world. And I have a question about that, and that question is, does our mindset, because it comes before the action in the scripture in Romans, the mindset comes first. So changing the way we think about ourselves influences the way that we act, right? Because someone at our table had a really good question. She said, um, what does it mean to offer your, your body as an instrument of wickedness? And I was like, that can mean a whole lot of things. I mean, when we're kids, it's easy, right? When you are a kid and you run up and smack somebody else in the face with your hand, that's sin. You're smacking somebody else. It's easy to call it out. As adults, we're much more sophisticated and better at hiding things and deceiving ourselves and the people around us. So it could look like putting your eyes on something you're not supposed to see. It could look like using your mouth to speak gossip or slander or a lie about somebody in your community. It could look like harboring, I don't know, it could look like a whole bunch of things. 
It really could. So it's not so it's not so obvious as like walking up to somebody and punching them in the face. It's more like, what am I taking in? What am I choosing to do with my time? Things like that. One thing that I have process right? Yep. Yeah, we're super interwoven. So, and then at the end of 2 Corinthians, what is the thing that we're called to do? What does God give us to do? He says that we're to be ambassadors for Christ in the world. He gives us the message of reconciliation, right? So you and me, we get to go out into our jobs, we get to go out into the things that we do for fun, we get to go out into our families, and we get to be a picture of who Jesus is to the people around us. And that is a weighty responsibility, but it's also a really exciting responsibility. And that's why it's so important that as Christ followers, even though, we're, even though Jesus says you are legally clean, you are legally not guilty, we still have a choice on this earth, on our journey, of offering ourselves to sin or to God. It's still our choice. As a Christ follower, I can offer myself to sin. I can fall into something that has mastery over me if I choose to do that. So that's a warning as well for us, that just because we know Jesus and we know the right thing doesn't mean that we can just kind of drift along. We have to choose the right thing. We have to choose him every day. Okay, so we're going to go to map number three. Our friend Christian is continuing on his journey of sanctification, and he has made it up the hill of difficulty, and he has made it to this place called House Beautiful, which is so nice. He goes into House Beautiful, he has a good night's sleep, he gets some really yummy things to eat, and he's like, all right, I'm ready, which is a good thing that he's ready, because then he goes into the valley of the shadow of death. Sounds great, right? So I'm just going to go ahead and read a little bit of information in the story. And we're going to go for a little while. So here, <clears throat> Christian is attacked and almost overcome by a fiend named Apollyon, a hideous monster with scales like a fish, wings like a dragon, mouth like a lion. He went for all the animals, feet like a bear, flames and smoke. And Christian, after a painful struggle, wounds the fiend with his sword. So he's wearing spiritual armor, and his sword is the sword that um, Ephesians 6 talks about, which is the sword of scripture. So he wounds the enemy with his sword and drives him off. And then he keeps going, and it's a wilderness, a land full of deserts and pits, inhabited by yowling hobgoblins. I love the word. I'm sorry, guys. I love old English. Like, what is a hobgoblin? And other dreadful creatures. The path here is very narrow, edged on one side by a deep, water-filled ditch in which many have drowned. On the other side, by a treacherous bog, walking carefully, Christian goes on and soon finds himself close to the open mouth of hell, out of which comes a cloud of noxious fumes, fire, sparks, and hideous noises. With flames flickering all around and smoke almost choking him, Christian manages to get through a prayer. And nearing the end of the valley, he hears a shout, raised up by someone up ahead, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
and as only another pilgrim could have raised that cry, Christian runs forward to see who it could be, and to his surprise, he finds it is an old friend named Faithful, who was one of his neighbors in the City of Destruction. So happily journeying together, talking about their adventures and their misadventures, the two pilgrims come to the town of Van Fair, which is right above the valley of the shadow of death on your map. Interested in only commerce and money making, the town holds a year-round fair at which all kinds of things are bought and sold. Houses, land, trade, titles, lust, pleasure, body, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. Christian and Faithful infuriate the merchandisers by turning up their noses at the wares offered them, saying that they would buy nothing but the truth. Their presence and their attitude cause a stir in the town which leads the authorities to jail them for disturbing the peace. Faithful is executed by the town authorities because he chooses not to love the things of vanity, of vanity fair. The Christian is able to get free and goes on his way, but not alone, because he has been joined again by Hopeful, a native of vanity fair who is fleeing in search of better things. They continue to the plain of ease, walking on the holy way. And we'll go to math number four. For a time, the holy way follows the riverbank, but then veers off into rougher ground, which is hard on the sore and tired feet of the travelers. Wishing there was an easier way, they plod along until they come to another meadow behind a high fence. Having climbed the fence to have a look, Christian persuades Hopeful that they should move over off the holy way into the meadow where there is a soft, grassy path paralleling theirs. Moving along that path, they catch up to a man called Vain Confidence, who says that he is bound for the celestial city and he knows the way perfectly. They follow him until they're completely lost. They fall asleep, and then the next morning they are surprised and seized by the prince of the meadow, a giant named Despair. Charging them with malicious trespassing, he calls them into his stronghold, Downing Castle, which is off to the left on your page, and throws them into a deep, dark dungeon where they lie for days without food or drink. At length, Despair appears, beats them senseless, and advises them to take their own lives so that he will not have to come back and finish them off himself. But when all seems hopeless, Christian suddenly remembers, what a fool I am. I've been in a stinking dungeon when I can walk at liberty because I have a key in my pocket called the promise, which I am persuaded will open any lock in Downing Castle. Christian and Hopeful continue their journey through more trials and interesting moments until they reach the river of death, which is at the top. And then they go to the celestial city where their journey ends and they're reunited with their friend Faithful. So what I want you guys to notice about that story is that Christian didn't have a perfect journey. He got off the path, he got confused, he ended up in this castle of doubt. How many of us have ever had a doubt about our faith? How many of us have ever doubted where God is leading us? What I want you guys to understand is that sanctification is not a journey of perfection. This is one of your fill in the blanks. It's a journey of obedience, and it's a journey of faith. When I think about the weight of being an ambassador for Christ, it makes me feel like I have to be perfect to the people around me. It makes me feel like I can't make a mistake, or if I do, I need to cover it up and hide it. But what if being an ambassador of reconciliation is the opposite? What if it is us making a mistake and being honest about it and showing the world that God offers forgiveness 
and that we can live without fear of imperfection in our lives. Because our sanctification and our justification are taken care of by our Father. There's a lot of freedom and a lot of peace and a lot of joy and a lot of opportunity to share that with the world around us. And it's not something that's worldly. I think there's a lot of truth when um, John Money was talking about that, that city of vanity where the world offers you all of these things, riches and wealth and power and stuff. If America loves one thing, guys, it's our stuff, am I right? We love our stuff. What if we weren't afraid to say, I don't love stuff, but maybe I, I got pulled away by this thing that I wanted over here, and I'm gonna put that down now because God is worth more. What if we were able to say that openly as an ambassador for Christ? It's a journey of obedience, guys. I love, again, that description by John Wesley. It says that sanctification is a faith that works by divine love in the crucible of everyday life. We can walk obedience out, we can walk faith out with more courage, more boldness, when we remember that we're deeply loved. That we're deeply loved and we don't walk alone. Because life is a crucible, it's hard, it's painful, doubt is very real, it often feels like a giant beating us up internally. The world is full of vanities and distractions and fears. The enemy is going to try and discourage and defeat us. But we are led by divine love through our pilgrimage, through our journey of sanctification. And we're supposed to love the people we meet on the way. Invite them to choose hope with us. Invite them to walk alongside us. Because we grow in strength and in grace as we obey our shepherd. Psalm 84 is one of my very favorite psalms. It talks specifically to this journey of sanctification. The psalmist says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, which that word means despair, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. When I think about this valley in Baca, I think about Death Valley in California. It is the most barren, driest, ugliest piece of land in the history of the world. It is so hot. What if you're walking with someone through a desert that feels like it is the driest, hottest, hardest time in their life, and walking through it, the presence of God in our lives creates a pool, an oasis, a spring of living water for the person who's suffering, a place to rest. The scripture continues, they go from strength to strength. That is our journey of sanctification, guys. We don't start at 100, we start at one, and we go from two to three to four to five, and we keep going. We start over here, and we grow, and we grow, and we grow, just like babies grow, just like plants grow. But we continue to grow till each appears before God in Zion. And then going back to the idea of perfection, nobody starts at 100. Give yourself the grace that God has given you. If you've made a mistake, it's okay to say I've made a mistake. It's okay to own the mistake. It's okay to learn humility. It's okay to learn to put pride down. Because pride is one of those things that only the of the flesh is supposed to put to death. John Bunyan, this is a quote out of Pilgrim's Progress. And it says, the hill though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come pluck up heart, that's neither faint nor fear. Better the difficult, the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is low. 
It's always hard to see the purpose in wandering in the wilderness until it's over. So I just want to encourage you guys, if you're in a wilderness time tonight, to keep going. There's purpose in what you guys are doing. If you guys are not in a wilderness time, but you know someone who is, I just encourage you to encourage them. Be that ambassador of reconciliation. So our final question for the night to wrap up is this might be the first time you've studied justification and sanctification. So if it was the first time, what stood out to you? Did you learn anything tonight? Is there anything you have questions about? Your table leaders may know the answer, they may not. I might know the answer, I might not. But we'll try and answer it. And if we don't know the answer, we'll find someone who does. So don't be afraid to ask questions. If you're familiar with justification, sanctification, what stood out to you tonight in the scripture that we looked at? Or in the summary of Pilgrim's Progress? Okay. Any questions about the questions? Okay.